Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we want everybody to follow along, and so we want you to have a Bible. The guys have some, so get their attention as they make their way back. If you want a Bible, they'll get one to you. It's marked at Ephesians 6 for your convenience. As we continue our series, closing in on the end of our series in the book of Ephesians, six chapters worth, and we are in the sixth and final chapter. The series is titled, as you see on the screen, Your Place in God's Plan. We will explain a little bit about that title and how it fits the theme of the book of Ephesians as we look at our message today in Ephesians chapter 6. Most of you know the story of Amelia Earhart, the famed aviator who attempted a a flight around the globe in 1937, but the plane that she and Fred Noonan were flying disappeared somewhere in the Pacific. Neither of the passengers nor the plane has ever been found, and their disappearance has kept conspiracy buffs busy for decades. What's clear to everyone is that for some reason the plane lost communication with the Coast Guard cutter that should have been providing positioning information. And as a result, they were flying without a compass, so to speak. They were lost, and they would eventually run out of fuel and crash. We've all seen more modern episodes of this kind of thing on TV, where a pilot's instrumentation might fail, he's lost communication with air traffic control, Perhaps he's in a fog, and as a result, those on the plane are in great danger. Now picture yourself flying a plane, and you're in a fog, and your panel instruments have stopped working. The good news is you've still got radio communication with the tower who can in turn guide you around danger and to a safe landing. Picture yourself not flying just any plane, but a military aircraft. And you're not just in the fog of weather, but you're in what military personnel call the fog of war. That is, once the battle starts, the best laid plans often go awry, and it's mayhem. You can't see. Things are not going according to plan. Your navigational equipment is not working. You're being shot at from every side. But you have radio communication with the base. They're guiding you, and they are your only hope to make it out alive, let alone get in any shots on the enemy. Now suppose in that situation, it's war, and you're vulnerable, and you're in danger, and the only source of communication you have is your radio headset, And in the midst of the flurry and the shooting, you decide to disconnect from the base. You remove the headset and you decide to fly solo in enemy territory. Those results are predictable, aren't they? How foolish could anyone be, we say. Yet that's precisely how many of us are going about spiritual warfare. We're in a battle to the death 
with forces that have us outnumbered and outgunned. We're in the fog of war and our equipment, our own equipment, is not very good. And all we have is communication from headquarters to guide us to safety. But we've removed the transmitter. Headquarters still speaks. But we're not listening. In spiritual warfare, friends, the headset does not fall off. It's deliberately removed. In spiritual warfare, the communications don't fail, they're destroyed. And they're destroyed by us. The Bible teaches us that our gracious God has supplied all the equipment we need in order to be effective in battle. But irrationally and foolishly and suicidally, we remove it. How do I know? if I've laid aside what God has provided for me to do battle? Well, when I crash and burn, it'll be obvious, right? But the signs were all there years before the crash. Time after time after time after time. We were warned that we were slightly off course, but we didn't heed. And then we're in a crisis and teams are dispatched to intervene, but we didn't heed. And by the time it all fell apart, we're so completely in another world and another mindset that we don't see the connection between our past sin and our current state. The Bible warns us of those whose lives are, and this is the Bible's language, whose lives become shipwrecked. People who are shipwrecked. Homes that are shipwrecked. Children who are shipwrecked. Worse yet. I mean, we'll all know when it crashes and burns, right? We'll all know we had neglected the equipment, the transmitter, decided to go our own route. Worse yet. You say, How, what could be worse than crashing and burning? Well, see, at least when you crash, if you survive the crash, at least you know you weren't doing it right. And sometimes people hit bottom and they say, you know what, I'm going to listen now. And thanks be to God. So worse yet is to sail along in the wrong direction and continue to sail along in the wrong direction, thinking that everything's cool. And it need not be either way. We need not sail along in the wrong direction. God has given us a very clear direction. We need not crash and burn if we will cease removing the transmitter and listen while we can. It doesn't have to be that way for any person here. But friend, recognize this. God's Word says over and over and over again, and in our passage in Ephesians 6 makes clear once again, we are in a battle. And in that battle, you cannot go your own route. And in that battle, you cannot refuse the equipment that God supplies to you. 
in this battle, you and I most desperately need the aid of our gracious God. We're going to begin today and over the next few weeks looking at the specific weapons of warfare that God provides for us. As we do, let's ask God to help us, help us to open our eyes. I pray for any here who have been merrily sailing along in the wrong direction, that God would open our eyes and our ears. I pray for any here who are in danger of crashing and burning yourself and your family and your children, that God will open our eyes and our ears. Let's bow together. Father, we come to you thanking you, Lord God, that you do not leave us directionless. We sing, I once was lost, but many of us still live like we're lost. Because we set out our own course in our own direction using our own weapons of warfare. Oh Lord, help us to see the foolishness of this and to avail ourselves of the gracious gifts that you give us to wage this spiritual battle. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The title of our series is Your Place in God's Plan. At the beginning of our message last week, I spent some time trying to summarize all of what God says in the book of Ephesians. I'm not going to do that now, but if you were not here, or if you need a refresher, I would encourage you to listen online. But finding our place in God's plan means for us to fulfill the purpose for which God has us here. And the ultimate purpose for which God has us here is to reflect Him back to Him. And that's why God says in chapter 4 of verse 24 of Ephesians that we are being recreated in righteousness and holiness. Recreated by God to show His image back to Him. Our place in God's plan means that, that we reflect the character of God, that as we sang, Lord, I want to be like you. And I want to be like you in the circumstances that you have placed me. That's my place. That's your place in God's plan. I say in your outline that I encourage you to take a look at, that if we're going to find our place in God's plan, then a number of things are necessary. First, God's strength is required. If we're going to fulfill this purpose, God's strength is required for us. How do I know this? Because verse 13 of chapter 6 says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Now when it says, therefore, it's connecting verse 13 to verses 10 through 12 that we saw last week. And what we're being told in verse 13 is, therefore, because of what's been said in those three verses, it's necessary for you to put on armor that's supplied to you from outside of yourself that comes from God. Now, why is it necessary for you to have this armor from God? Because verses 10 through 12 tell us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of this dark age. 
God is telling us very clearly that this battle is above your pay grade. It's way above your ability. You have no chance, you have no shot at surviving, let alone winning this battle, without the armor that I supply to you. Therefore, because this is the enemy, and the enemy, as, as I described it last week, wicked, and powerful, and subtle, because this enemy is stronger than you, this battle is beyond you. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. God's strength is required because the enemy is greater than you are. God's strength is required due to this enemy, this powerful and wicked and subtle enemy, engaging in, point A in your outline, a barrage of attack. The enemy is shooting at you all the time. The enemy has you in his sights every moment of every day. Barrage of attack. Now, when I say barrage of attack, you think, and in fact, I believe most people think, I used to think this certainly as a kid and as a teenager, reading a passage like this, there's a spiritual warfare going on. Satan is attacking me. Satan has me in his sights. And I would view as a full frontal assault the way Satan would come after me. I've become convinced over the years that's precisely how he wants me to view it. A full frontal announced assault. I, Satan, have declared war on Ken and I'm coming after him. Here I am. See if you can take me. But he doesn't act like that at all. His attack is not usually all at once. But rather, his attack is subtle. And that's why it says in verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes. Now again, we read that. And we think there's this full frontal assault. There's going to be this day of evil in the future. And all of God's people are going to be summoned to do this battle. And when that happens, I'm going to be ready. And that's not what it's saying. When it says, when the day of evil comes... It's an inevitability because the day of evil is, co is coming and comes regularly. That when, not if, notice that, when, not if the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand. It's saying this. When Satan brings temptation and pressures designed to cause you to fail, God says, I've designed for you to stand. He does not usually come with a full frontal assault, but rather bit by bit, weakening us stealthily, guerrilla warfare rather than army to army warfare. And that's why the Bible insists, going back to verse 12, that we stand, or excuse me, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your notice, stand against the devil's schemes. And then again in verse 13, that you will be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. And then verse 14, stand firm then. Four times in these three verses, stand, a military term. Designed to tell us that stability is what's necessary 
if we're going to withstand the onslaught, the barrage, bit by bit, piece by piece, day by day, moment by moment of the enemy. When we're told to stand, just like we often view spiritual warfare as this onslaught that comes, comes at us all at once, when we're told to stand, we picture a person swerving and twisting who's obviously in trouble. Again, it's not the case. When the day of evil comes, Satan applies pressure to points in your situation where he knows you're weak. And so you're not swerving and twisting and obviously in trouble. In fact, the person you, I, might be fine. Now hear this carefully, friends. We might be just fine under certain conditions. It's when the conditions change that we're shown to be unprepared. And so we're going along just fine. Everything's cool. Yes, I'm ignoring the armor that God has given. Yes, I'm flying solo. But everything's going smooth. And then conditions change. And we are exposed. Exposed as weak because we have not availed ourselves of the armor that God provides. You know, friends, Satan is trying to take you apart one piece at a time. One moment at a time, one sin at a time. We tend to look at our circumstances and find ourselves where we are in our spiritual struggles. And we disconnect where we are from where we've been. But where you are is always connected to where you've been. You didn't get there by accident. You got there one moment at a time, one seemingly small battle at a time where you gave ground to the enemy in his barrage, bit by bit, of attack. You all familiar with the game Jenga? You know, you're trying to build this thing, and if you pull something from the bottom, it's still standing, it's wobbly, right? But I keep pulling and nothing's... Nothing's destroyed. The, the world didn't come to an end just because I made that one compromise. There are professing Christian people who are playing Jenga with their lives. Keep pulling out the props. Keep pulling out the supports. And hoping it doesn't all fall apart. And when it falls apart, make no mistake, my friend, it's because we've been pulling out the supports. God's strength is required because Satan is engaged in a barrage of attack piece by piece, bit by bit, moment by moment, day by day. That's why the Bible warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Lest he fall. It's all good. I'm standing without this armor. I'm not using the stuff that God says I desperately need, but it's all going okay. And it's going to crumble. And it will crumble because of what we failed to do and avail ourselves of in the past. 
God's strength is required due to the barrage of attack, but secondly in your outline, due to our vulnerability to that attack. Notice that this armor in both verse 11 and in verse 13 is the armor of God. I need strength. I need weapons. I need armor that only God can supply against this enemy that is vastly greater than me. And so in the verses that follow, God gives us six indispensable items. A belt and a breastplate and sandals and a shield and a helmet and a sword. And then he adds a non-clothing item beginning in verse 18 of prayer. And all of this emphasizes the completeness of our outfit for spiritual battle. We need God's strength due to our vulnerability to attack. To put that another way, the only way that we will day by day, moment by moment, avail ourselves of what God has provided is if we see ourselves as weak. If you think you're strong, my friend, if you think you can attack this enemy and prevail by ignoring the weapons that Almighty God makes available to you, that arrogance will be the, your fall. The only way that we will avail ourselves of God's strength is when we recognize our own weakness. And yet, so many of us live as though we can fight this war without the signals from headquarters. Hear this. Every day that you live without the word of truth, you're saying to God, I've got it covered. Every day that you live without prayer, you're saying, God, I don't need your help. Every day that you live without faith, believing the promises of God rather than the lies of the enemy, you are saying, God, I can handle this without you. God's strength is absolutely required because we're under a barrage of attack, moment by moment, bit by bit due to our own vulnerability, our own weakness. What does God provide for us to withstand our ground? Verse 14 tells us, Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And I say in your outline, that as we engage in this warfare, God's truth is foundational. It says, have the belt of truth buckled around your waist. When a soldier in New Testament times tightened his belt, he was ready for combat. Because in the process of tightening, he drew up his tunic and he cinched it in place so that it would not impede him as he charged into battle. It also firmly fixed his sword in place as well. And so, for our thinking, it's kind of like a football player who clenches his mouthpiece and his teeth. He adjusts his pads and he gets down in his stance for the next play. Or sometimes you see a basketball player instinctively pull up their shorts slightly as they get down in a defensive stance. When the soldier tightened the belt, he was doing something more crucial than what's done in modern day sports because the belt held everything in place. The belt held everything in place, and without it, he would be powerless in battle. Let me say that again. The belt of truth 
holds everything in place. And without it, you are powerless in battle. Without truth, you have no chance. And this is why Satan attacks truth first. Y'all remember that? I mean, isn't that what Satan did in the garden? He says, did God really say? And Eve recounts what she heard from Adam that God had, had told them. And then he attacks God's truth. He says, you will not, contrary to what God has said, you will not surely die. Satan attacks truth first. Now, it might seem in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan's attacking God's goodness first. God's a killjoy. He is attacking that, but in order to attack that, he has to attack truth first. He's saying God doesn't want what's best for you despite the fact that God has said otherwise. So yes, he's saying that God is a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't have your best interest at heart, but in order to communicate that, he has to say God's a liar in saying otherwise. This is why Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Jesus, when he was confronting his religious opponents, when he walked the earth, he said on one occasion in John 8, you, religious opponents, belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. Now notice, he's a murderer, but here's why he's a murderer. Because there's no truth. What we do is based upon what we buy, what we buy into. And the question is, have we bought into truth? He's a murderer, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus said, as he prayed for his first followers in John 17, he said these words, Sanctify them by the truth. And what is the truth? Your word is truth. Sanctify, that is, set them apart, set my followers apart from everybody else, from the crowd who goes along with all that they're told by the culture, by the media, by academia. Set them apart by the truth. Your word is what contains the truth. Chapter 4 and verse 21 of Ephesians speaks of the truth that is in Jesus. Friends, truth is foundational. Satan attacks truth first. And that's why fighting for truth is an absolutely noble cause. We live in a day when we all just want to go along to get along, can't we all just love Jesus, hold hands, and sing Kumbaya? I mean, I know that people are ripping the Bible apart, saying that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, a lie of Satan. And it needs to be exposed. There are people telling you that they have special powers from God to heal you, a lie from Satan, and it needs to be exposed. Fighting for truth is a noble cause. 
General William Tecumseh Sherman. Some of you are familiar in history. The Civil War and Sherman's march to the sea. As he set ablaze everything in his path, including the city of Atlanta, gone with the wind. But it was Sherman who coined the phrase, War is hell. No one knows the hell of war like those who have engaged in the battle. Sherman understood it, and therefore he didn't, he didn't want it. And the truth is, we should never want to be in battle. We don't look for the battle. But when the battle presents itself to us in the form of Scripture being compromised, truth being compromised then fighting for truth is indeed a noble cause. And we see this war imagery, especially for truth, throughout Scripture. Jude wrote, contend, that is fight, for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Fighting, against, fighting for truth is indeed a noble cause. We saw this happen. I want to give you some historical anecdotes with regard to this. Just almost exactly a hundred years ago, the turn of the century, there was an epic battle for truth that took place. This battle for truth is, if you were to Google it, if you were to look it up in church history books, you would, it's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. hundred years ago, turn of the last century, fundamentalist modernist, what's modernism? The idea had infiltrated denominations and denominational seminaries and schools that modern science has trumped the Bible. And therefore, things that the Bible says like there's an historical Adam and Eve, they were real people in a garden, they were the first two people from whom came everybody else, that's a myth, said they. Science doesn't support it, said they. One by one, they began to deny clear teachings of Scripture. And if what they saw as science and archaeology contradicted what was in the Bible, then so much the worse for the Bible. And so the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And there were, published in 1920, a series of tracts called The Fundamentals. These tracts were financed by the Stewart brothers, who were the benefactors of the Union Oil Company. They were Baptists, it turns out. And they financed the publication of these tracts to say this is what God says about cardinal truth in Scripture that must not be denied. Princeton Seminary, whose first president was the greatest theologian America has ever produced in Jonathan Edwards. But by this time, by the turn of the last century, Princeton Seminary, the flagship seminary of the Presbyterian Church USA, had bought into all of the modernist teachings. Some of the faculty included J. Gresham Machen, and Cornelius Van Til, and Robert Wilson, and O.T. Alice. These four men left Princeton Seminary and started a new seminary in Philadelphia called Westminster Seminary. I've had the privilege to stand in Machen Hall at Westminster 
What a great privilege to be in a place founded by men who cared more about truth than their own popularity, than their own pensions, and they were willing to give that up to stand for God's truth. Thanks be to God. Machen wrote a book, a marvelous book, called Christianity and Liberalism. It's a classic. And notice the title. Christianity and liberalism. There's Christianity and there's liberalism, and they ain't the same. That's what he's saying. When Machen died on January 1 of 1937, the same year that Amelia Earhart disappeared, the infamous skeptic and journalist H.L. Mencken wrote an article about him. The title of the article was Mr. Fundamentalist. And I'd like to read for you some excerpts from a guy who's a, an avowed non-Christian. He's a non-believer. But this is what he said about Machen. What caused him to quit the Princeton Theological Seminary and found a seminary of his own was his complete inability as a theologian to square the disingenuous evasions of modernism with the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. doctrine. He saw clearly that the only effects that could follow diluting and polluting Christianity in the modernist manner would be its complete abandonment and ruin. Either it was true or it was not. And if, as he believed, it was true, then there could be no compromise with persons who sought to whittle away its essential postulates, however respectable their motives. Thus he fell out with the reformers, who have been trying in late years to convert the Presbyterian Church into a kind of literary and social club, devoted vaguely to good works. Most of the other Protestant churches have gone the same way, but Dr. Machen's attention as a Presbyterian was naturally concentrated upon his own connection. His one and only purpose was to hold the church resolutely to what he conceived to be the true faith. When that enterprise met with opposition, he fought vigorously. And though he lost in the end and was forced out of Princeton, it must be manifest that he marched off to Philadelphia with all the honors of war. He goes on. He denied absolutely that anyone had a right to revise and sophisticate holy writs. Either it was the Word of God or it was not the Word of God. And if it was then it was equally authoritative in all its details and had to be accepted or rejected as a whole. Anyone was free to reject it, but no one was free to mutilate it or read things into it that were not there. Thus, the issue with the modernists was clearly joined and Dr. Machen argued them quite out of court and he sent them scurrying back to their literary and sociological coffee clutch. His operations, to be sure, did not prove that Holy Writ is infallible, either as history or as theology. But they at least disposed of those who proposed to read it as they might read a newspaper, believing what they choose and rejecting what they choose. How many professing Christian people read the Bible like a modernist? I'll take the pieces I like. I'll reject the pieces that 
don't square with what I want. Standing for truth is noble. But embracing truth is more noble. You see, it's one thing for all of us to sit here or stand here and say, Go Machen. I'm on Machen's team. You tell him. What a guy. But the question is, do I embrace the truth? Do you embrace the truth? In our daily battle with compromise, and not compromise on a grand scale like Machen was facing, but compromise in my own life every moment of every day, truth is foundational. And it's foundational because, as I say in your outline, it's part of God's nature. The Bible says very clearly, God is not a man that he should lie. It says very pointedly, God does not lie. And so truth is part of God's nature, and truth is crucial, I say, point B, to God's plan. God communicated truth in the garden. He continues... He, continued to communicate truth, has embodied that in a book that we call Holy Scripture. And it's absolutely crucial to your place in God's plan that you avail yourself of that book and you not only give lip service and mental assent to it, but you embrace it in every aspect of the life God has called you to. God communicated truth and He made us as people in His image to receive that truth, and then to be conduits of that truth. But hear this, dear friend. Every time you choose psychology over the Bible, you should hear the hiss of the serpent. Every time you choose so-called science over the Bible, you should hear the hiss of the serpent. Every time you choose the culture over the Bible, hear the hiss of the serpent. What does the culture tell us? Oh my, we don't have time. But God doesn't say it's a, an alternate lifestyle choice, does He? God says homosexuality is sin. God does not use medical terminology to apply to choices that we make. So every time you adopt disease terminology for what God says is a choice that we make, you should hear the hiss of that serpent. Every time you are tempted and you succumb to make decisions that are laying up treasures on earth, when Jesus says, lay not treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? Hear the hiss of the serpent. As he tells you, you deserve it. You worked hard for it. It's yours. No, it ain't. Every time you say in your mind or with your lips, Forgiveness is optional. The serpent is hissing. You see, God's truth says forgiveness is mandatory. Mandatory. I have forgiven you 
Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. You just need to turn back a page. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Matthew chapter 6. If you will not forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. But we arrogate to ourselves the right to say, I'll forgive when I feel like it? God's truth is foundational. And if you don't buy into that truth, if you don't embrace that truth, it will affect how you live. It will affect your own truthfulness or lack thereof, which is the third point in your outline. God's truth is foundational. And thirdly, our truthfulness is essential. In the words of that great theologian, Billy Joel, honesty is such a lonely word because everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard, but mostly what I need from you. It's not no, really mostly what I need from you. Friends, it's what's needed for you. We first embrace the truth that God has given, and in turn now, that affects the way we communicate and our own truthfulness. And it's essential to us finding our place in God's plan that we be truthful, honest people who traffic only in truth and only convey that which we know to be true to those who need, have a need to know it. My, what a different way we would speak if that was our rubric. Truth is to be part, is part, of, I say in your outline, our new nature. Chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, You were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Truth is part of our new nature. And so I am telling you this, friends, if you're going to traffic in untruth or half-truth, if you're going to forward to the whole world emails that you don't have any idea if they're true, if anybody asks you where you go to church, do this. I'm authorizing you to lie. Tell them you're a Jehovah's Witness. But please don't associate that with Community Baptist Church and the light of truth that we are to be in our community. You say, really? I mean, we, we tell the truth, right? We Christians? Huh. Well, when it works, I want you to think about when you are tempted to lie. And you identify when it is you are tempted to lie and you have identified an idol in your heart. Maybe I'm tempted to lie when I'm going to be embarrassed. The truth would be embarrassing, and so I lie. So what is the idol of my heart? The opinion of people, rather than the pleasure of God. I may be tempted to lie if I can close the sale. What is my functional God in my heart? Money. 
You look at when it is you are tempted to lie, and behind that there is a functional idol in your heart. Truth is part of our new nature. We, we think, therefore, we Christians always tell the truth. Uh, just this week, I had a Christian person look me right in the eye and make something up on the spot. Just make it up. Because the truth was too painful. Truth is part of our new nature, therefore essential to us finding our place in God's plan. And I've got good news. Truth is possible because of the gospel of Jesus. Truth is possible because of the gospel. Without the gospel, truly, we cannot handle the truth about ourselves. Right? Without the gospel, the truth about what I am and what I'm like and what I am capable of is just too ugly and painful apart from the gospel. But with the gospel, you can handle the truth. Nicholson has nothing to worry about. Because you can face what God says. And you can face what God says truthfully about who we are and what we've done and what we're susceptible to and what we're tempted to do. Because our gracious God and the Lord Jesus has taken it upon Himself. And therefore, as we've been saying in our series, The Gospel-Centered Life, during our second hour, you don't have to pretend and you don't have to perform. You can tell the truth about it. We must appropriate the truth of the gospel. If we're going to be truthful about ourselves and about our situation with God and with others. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. I will only have that good conscience if I practice the truth that is in Jesus. I say in your take-home truth, we can only display the character of God when we believe and when we apply the truth. Now we're going to pray in just a moment. And as we do, I pray and I trust that this will be a time of reflection for us. Friend, have you thought about your functional idols that keep you from being a truthful person? Both in what you say and what you convey, right? Because you convey, you convey messages without saying anything, right? So in what I say and what I convey, I am to reflect the truthfulness that is our God and that is in Jesus. Think about when you are tempted to lie. And confess those idols to our God. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there are some of you here today who walked into this room and don't know the Jesus who is truth. And I've tried to describe for you a spiritual warfare in which all of us are vulnerable. All of us are completely weak and exposed unless we have the armor of God. Friends, without the Savior, without the Master, without the Lord Jesus Christ, you are hopeless in this world. 
But Jesus Christ has come to deliver you, rescue you, save you. And he's done that by dying on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that you can have a relationship with the God from whom we all come into this world estranged, separated. He lived a perfect life, thanks be to God. And his perfect righteousness is applied to me and applied to you when we come to him. And so now I can be honest about who I, who I am. I'm not on a treadmill trying to impress God. I can't impress God. Only Jesus, God the Son, has impressed God the Father because only He is sinless and perfect. But if I have His righteousness, now I can be honest about my own sin and struggle. And so I invite you as we pray to come to the throne of your God with empty hands and ask Him for the gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. He says, He promises, and He is truthful. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your truth. We thank you for giving us this truth in clear language, in our language. You've given us directions. You've given us signals. You've given us this navigational device for us to make our way through the maze that is this confusing and dark and fallen world. Your word indeed is truth. And so Lord, help me and help us to be people of the truth, who traffic in the truth, who embrace it, who read it, who study it, who proclaim it, who love it. And Lord, not just love it in the abstract, but who live it Monday through Saturday. And in our communication with our spouses, and with our children, and with our employers, and with our peers. Help us to be people, Lord, who can take a clear look into the mirror of the Word of God and see ourselves there in all of our sin, but see the Savior standing there who has taken our sin upon Himself. And thereby we can admit it and confess it, make it right with those who have been affected by it. And only thereby can we find our place in your plan. Oh, Lord God, we need your strength. We need your Holy Spirit to move upon us, to resonate in our hearts so that we want this more than anything in this world. I pray that my brothers and sisters here will want Jesus and to look like Jesus more than anything in this world. And I pray that there are people right now who are embracing Jesus as their Savior and bowing before Him as their Lord. And that you'll begin your reclamation project in them from the inside out to your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.